The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to episode 25 of the Cinematography Podcast. Episode 25, one after 24. It's pretty amazing. I can't believe we got 25 of these done in only 75 years or however long we've been doing this. You know know what? You look good for 75. Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) So, Ilya, who is on the show today? On the show today is Claudia Rushka. Tell me about Claudia. What what, What kind of stuff has she shot? Well, Claudia's got a very... Uh, diverse background and career uh, but she's probably best known for shooting documentaries including she's worked on four different documentaries nominated for Academy Awards and she, oh, ta- so, she talks yeah. about them in the interview so <laughs> I don't want to you know bury the lead too much here but <laughs> if you remember movies like Mad Hot Ballroom or My Architect she she worked on those awesome awesome well that's great love right. having Oscar nominees on here yeah, that, we're nothing that. but Oscar nominees and superhero DPs. That's all we do. We should change the name. <laughs> it's the Oscar nominee and superhero DP podcast. <laughs> yes. Anyway, well, uh, well, that's awesome. Well, uh, let's get right into the interview. All right, here she is, Claudia Rashka. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Claudia, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast, especially here at NAB, where we are inside the Tokina booth. The way the podcast generally kicks off is there's a stock question. Uh, My my co-host has a question. He likes to ask. I have a question I like to ask. And it's this. My belief is that cinematographers are part artist and part plumber. And you have to have a certain amount of both to be good at your craft because if you uh, have no part artist then it doesn't look very good and if you have no part plumber then it might not be very technically correct where do you fall on that spectrum how, how, how much artist or how much plumber do you, do you think you are what a great question first of all thank you for having me here um, I like NAB and am I a plumber or am I an artist I think that I would fall on the spectrum of about um, 40% plumber, 60% artist, but it depends on the project. I think being technically savvy is a must. You have to be a mathematician. Uh, You have to be able to calculate your um, equations in terms of uh, you're going to a location. You have to understand the scope of the situation that you're about to film, especially in verite, in documentary filmmaking. And during that time, you kind of assess the uh, sweet spots and the downfalls of the lighting of a location, and you uh, try to position yourself with the unfolding of the story uh, to capture the most cinematic coverage that you can possibly capture. And that means that you have to have done your math. That means that you have to understand depth of field, your lensing, your movements, um, how to do coverage. That's the plumber part. And so once you have that in your blood, then you can become the artist. Then you can say, ooh, look, this is becoming emotionally intense. I'm going to go into silhouettes. You know, or like, ooh, He's kind of withholding all of his emotions. Let me come closer. And so you're trying to, you know, um, interpret the emotional subtext of what's unfolding. And with that, you know, plumber part in your blood, you know how to go as an artist. I, I think that's that that's the best answer I've ever actually had to that question. That's really wonderful. And. I think that's really true. I think that at some point you, you turn off your, your brain to the, the plumber because it becomes second nature. You know all that, but if you don't have it, it's so much harder to do your work. It's so much harder to, to go in. It's like going in unprepared. How did cinematography speak to you? How did this happen? How did I become a cinematography addict? Because you become an addict. That is true. I don't think I can live without filmmaking. I think it all started for me when I was still a dancer. I came to New York in 84 and uh, was heavily involved in modern dance, but I had to support myself, so I had multiple waitressing jobs. 
during that time, I did a lot of still photography just as a hobby, not ever thinking about making that into a career. And a colleague of mine saw it and said, like, hey, you really have a good eye. Have you ever thought about going into cinematography? I said, like, what's that? And he happened to be a part-time teacher at Columbia University and took me under his wing and said, like, look, I'll teach you how to become a camera assistant if you want to just check it out because I could use some free help. <laughs> I, think, I think everyone ever got started in this business uh, has heard, heard, heard that one. But at least you got it out, out of the way right at the very beginning. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to exploit you for a little while. Do you think you could do some work for me? So. <laughs> Exactly. So anyway, he took me on his wings, and little did he know, he gave me the camera and taught me how to load the film, and I looked at the camera like a sculpture. For me, I have sculpting background, I have painting background, I have dance background, I've always been in the arts. And so it was like, wow, this is magic, it's a sculpture, and there's some mystery in it, because I am going to close this, and then he's going to use it, and then there are images. Wow. So that was the first part. Then he invited me on set, obviously. I was there, and it was amazing. Everybody was working so hard and furiously, trying to, you know, uh, race time to make all of their work happen. And then the director would call action. And all of a sudden, the crew became invisible, and this invisible story became visible. And I caught myself being in the middle or at the intersection of two worlds, the harsh reality of sweat and tears and this magic of storytelling. And being at that transition and and being invisible and then being visible with really hard work was a dream come true because I saw lighting that was like me painting. I saw the choreography of the camera with the actors that was like me dancing a pas de deux. And uh, then, of course, the camera itself for me was like a sculpture with the lensing and the optics. And so I felt that I had trained my entire life to just end up at that moment and to become a cinematographer. And so thereafter, I just was struck, <laughs> struck by lighting <laughs> and uh, decided that I wanted to pursue it. And that's fantastic. So you, you started off learning the, the camera assistance, the loading, the loading trades. And I, I know that you, that you worked your, your way up because I know you have operating credits and, and other things, but what was that road like for you? I, I assume you probably had some mentors and people along the way who helped boost you along. Well, it was uh, quite significant at that point when I decided that I wanted to become a cinematographer. It was like a straight arrow on all of and there was only one path to go and everybody said to me look you know um, just work your way up the ladder so make yourself known join the union you know and uh, um, it's a people business the more people you know the more people you work with the better you will um, make it in the industry and so that's exactly what I did I continued working there were um, Jost Vakana who was a German cinematographer gave fantastic, me fantastic fantastic cinematographer <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, he uh, gave me a shot one of the wonderful experiences that I had in the union and uh, I worked with uh, uh, Steven Chopsky for Last Exit to Brooklyn and the same thing in that uh, as a camera assistant you have multiple cameras you are um, put from being a clapper loader to being a f- focus puller for operating, you know, D camera. So there are opportunities, and uh, when you do well, people recognize your hard work. And I am an incredibly hardworking woman. I think that uh, um, that really served me well. I never took anything for granted. I always studied hard, and so um, I was fortunate. They promoted me by giving me, giving me more jobs, and so. Um, uh, that was very successful, just in terms of uh, the union and uh, being a camera assistant. Well, but you know, you reach a point where you want to break free and you know feel like you have uh, done this, and how do you move on? And the union kind of limits you by saying, like, okay, you know, you want to operate, you have to upgrade to being an operator, and um, you know, therefore, you have to show credits of how you can operate, and so you kind of move outside the um, that rule. And uh, I ended kind of delving into the independent market and had opportunities at that point to uh, build my reel just because the cinematography teacher was tired of shooting at Columbia University and said like, hey, Claudia, now you start shooting here. And I said like, great. 
and I started building my reel and shot for four years at Columbia University, which ultimately um, got me an agent. And once I had an agent, I was plugged into the independent uh, industry and I started shooting more independent feature films, which then grew in budget. And uh, thereafter, you know, as, uh, as you're moving on and in between particular jobs, in the freelance world you're always looking for another way to make a buck you know you try to keep your keep yourself employed but also for me it was like i wanted to keep building my muscles on different in different genres and i encountered or i met diana taylor and diana taylor was one of the first women that i met i didn't even know that there were any and uh, found out that there were 10 international at that point in my life um, 10 female cinematographers and she was one of them and she was so lovely and charming and but she shot documentaries and so when I worked with her she completely uh, she is a philosopher she is you know she is somebody who knows just a lot about different cultures because she had traveled so so much uh, anthropologist ah, anthropologist okay gotcha yes, exactly. that was the word so, okay <laughs> yeah so she's an anthropologist and uh, um, just very well versed in different cultures and different stories and we had many conversations and uh, I became more and more interested in documentaries and probably because when you're shooting feature films if the script is not good or if the actors are not good it doesn't matter how hard you work the film will not be seen and I had experienced that a couple of times and uh, with documentaries I felt that you are uh, really capturing truth or you're looking for truth to reveal how uh, humans in this world struggle and how we try to better ourselves or how we come up with this innovative way to master a situation and that it is an it's an endless experience where you can just learn more and more and for me that was just amazing and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to understand people more and I wanted to kind of uh, have that connection and so the more I worked with Diana the more I became interested in documentaries and that was my segue I you know, decided that uh, that was really my passion, and I switched. I think that's a great story, and something that's really interesting and, and amazing about the um, split between the narrative world, the commercial world, and the documentary world is travel. And I know you travel with both, and you get to go to some very interesting places, but I'll tell you that when I've worked in the um, narrative world, and maybe you can confirm or deny that this is a similar experience to you, you might get to go to interesting places, but usually you get to go shoot white walls inside of them, or you get to shoot on a soundstage, or maybe you get to spend a few minutes running between one point or another. You don't, I think, experience the place the same when you're working on a narrative production, which is about telling a story with actors, and uh, working in the camera crew. It's interesting because during that setup time, you're, you're busy. And then during the actual shooting, when a lot of other people get to take a break or get to stop for a minute, camera folk don't. They keep working. They work, they work straight through that. My feeling is, at least in documentary, when I worked in documentary, it was possible to at least have moments where you actually got to experience where you were and understand what was going on and pay attention to what was really happening in life all around you versus worrying about where a mark was going to be or where uh, your cart of equipment was going to be or any of the other things that were artifice for the narrative production versus the actual moment that you were in when you were capturing documentary. Have you had an experience like this where, where you felt like perhaps what I mean both of them is real work both of them is hard work but it's a different uh, it's a different maybe emotional response or a different feeling that you get when you're seeing something that is absolutely real happening in the moment versus an actor's portrayal or a whole bunch of other work that's going around to create artifice what, what do you think about this I you know I actually have never thought about that but you completely capture that because um, when you're on a set shooting a feature you are on for the entire time and prep and when lighting is happening especially as a cinematographer there is no letting go or enjoying any moment even lunchtime is filled with talking to the AD or the director about tomorrow or the next location or whatnot so you don't really experience reality you are living in a, in, in a 
this world, of where you're creating a new world uh, from scratch. And that takes a lot of effort. So yes, you, you are not aware of where you are. It is just all in service to that particular scene or that plot point. Whereas in documentaries, you visit people's lives. You are in their home. You get to know them intimately. You um, are there when people die. I mean, you know, it's like I shot this documentary called Atomic Home Front, and I was there with people and hung out with their kids, and I was there when they died. And that is life-shifting. You know, that is makes an impact. And I think, um, in the end feature films, if you can sum it all up, or at least for me in, in, a, in a condensed version, feature films, people go and eat popcorn. No matter how hard you work, how difficult the set was, they'll eat popcorn and they laugh and they leave, right? But with documentaries, hopefully that'll trigger them and they'll feel motivated to uh, open their heart to their neighbors or to somebody across uh, you know, a, a different country in terms of their belief or their struggle so that there's a broader understanding. And that is uh, worth all the sweat and tears I can pour into it. Over the last uh, decade or two, it looks to me like specializing in documentary. And you've done exceptionally well with uh, many of the documentaries you've shot. Several of them, I think four of them, have been nominated for Oscars, nominated for Academy Awards. And I've seen, I've seen some of these movies, and they're fantastic. I particularly enjoyed Mad Hot Ballroom. That, was, uh, that looked like a lot of fun. And you got to spend a lot of time in the New York public school system, I'm sure, during that. But tell me about some of the other places that you've been because I know you've been to some other really exciting interesting places I mean we can talk about we could spend the next hour talking about Mad, uh, Mad Hot Ballroom but uh, really I, I'd like to I'd like to find out about some of the other interesting places that documentary work takes you and it, you've had gotten to have experiences that a lot of people don't get to have and that's the wonderful thing about your, your documentaries is that they give people a little window but when you're there firsthand it's not even the same as seeing it on the screen you get to kind of live and embody and be in that that space so tell me about where you've been that that had an impact on you well i uh, did this documentary called a sea change and uh, that is about ocean acidification. So I have a passion for science documentary. You know, I've done one on particle physics, and I'm doing right now one on a mathematician about coding and computers. And so there's like a certain, <laughs> sometimes I feel like a science nerd, but um, anyway, I did this documentary with uh, Barbara Ettinger, uh, on ocean acidification, which was uh, titled A Sea Change. And part of it took us to Alaska, to remote areas where the ocean was ultimately analyzed and investigated, and new ways were kind of invented to uh, really statistically measure of how much CO2 was being absorbed by the ocean and for the longest time people thought or well, scientists thought that you know the ocean would kind of uh, sponge up the co2 and pull it like a sink all the way down the drain unfortunately the reality is that the co2 stays pretty much in the upper layer of the ocean and this this is where all the fish are and so with the pollution the um, food chain of the fish kind of gets disrupted because of the plankton. The, the plankton uh, has to choose ultimately if the ocean is too acidic. Should they reproduce or should they just survive? And because of the lack of a certain amount of food for the fish, it affects the entire food chain. And so it was predicted that by uh, 2050, we will have very little fish to fry. Wow. So that took me ultimately to Alaska, but it also took me to the North Pole. And so we went to Svalbard, and from there it was very funny because, uh, you know, you are flying across uh, um, the ocean, and then you're flying across the ice, and then you're flying across these uh, mountains, and you can see the glaciers because of how they're moving. They have these uh, wonderful dark lines it's basically the stone from the mountains that has been shaved off because this massive amount of snow just pushes past them and 
carves deeper and deeper into the ground. And so you see these wonderful lines and it's very graphic and beautiful, but at the same time it goes on and on. And as you're landing in this tiny airport, which is basically just one gravel road, you know that you're really out far. And, you know, if the plane should crash, which it could, right? it's going to be hard to be rescued. <laughs> so you go to places with documentaries that kind of make you a little bit nervous and give you a, a certain taste of a different lifestyle. And while we were there, it was a very international community of uh, scientists, but uh, also it was when we were, you know, first day there, they came up to us and said like, so, you know, uh, you need to learn how to shoot a gun. Mm. Wow, I said, that's, really? that's something you expect when you show up on the first day. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? It's like, yeah, because, you know, they're polar bears here, and for you, uh, you are just a steak for them. <laughs> okay, so, so this immediately makes me think, uh, did you ever have to fire that gun? Did you have to, uh, <laughs> was it, were you on the polar bear menu at some point? Or? <laughs> well, but it, it's, it's quite uh, a shock when you go to the restaurant and uh, in Norway, they don't have the same limitations in terms of what they can serve. And they do put the polar bears on the menu when mm. they got shot by the humans. <laughs> so, so we did go and uh, there was polar bear steak on the menu. It was very funny because ultimately the polar bears mostly the cubs when they separate from their mothers get disoriented and they don't know where to go and so they wander into these tiny scientist uh, villages which are like 30 wood structures and you just don't know where they're going to be so you come out in the morning and you step really carefully around the corner because there could potentially be a polar bear. There are polar bear signs all over the place. Be aware of polar bears, you know. And so um, even the sled dogs there are all in huge fences so that the polar bears don't get <laughs> to the huskies. It is uh, quite crazy. Yeah, it, it it really sounds like it. That that that's that's totally remarkable. We we should we should talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We we really should because I know that that that's coming out shortly and it's getting a lot of buzz. There's a lot of attention, and already the feedback is really really fantastic. Can you tell me how you came to this project? How did RBG come to you, or how did you come to RBG? So um, the director uh, Julie Cohen and Betsy West had approached me about this potential project. Um, they wanted to have an all-female crew, and their reasoning for that was that uh, uh, they wanted to really represent a strong um, team of uh, women, leadership, a strong leadership team that would echo the equal rights fight that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has uh, um, done throughout her life. And they were already convinced about my abilities because I'd been, you know, look, I've been in the business for 30 years. And so they were really excited to team up. And that's how it started. And then we started talking about how to uh, make the film. And, you know, it is a biography about a person who has lived already a life. So varieté of capturing any life events is going to be difficult. A, because she's a Supreme Court justice with incredible little amount of time for us because her schedule is so booked with of course incredibly important uh, cases to to handle and um, life changing world changing yes na nation changing <laughs> yes uh, like yeah exactly. it, it, she's got a little responsibility on her plate just as just a smidge but so. you know the film ultimately is a her personal story and her professional rise as this diminutive and quiet warrior um, to the nation's highest court during a time that was quite hostile, hostile for women. You know, she has uh, uh, left a humongous and breathtaking legacy for, for equal rights, for women's rights. And so I was really so um, happy to be part of the team and try to capture that. So our conversation ultimately about how should we shoot it uh, centered around we will have a lot of archival footage to intercut tons yeah rather yeah. than home movies <laughs> so a lot of archival footage and uh, um, a lot of interviews so it's an interview based documentary how can you create a certain cohesive look for that and so for me it was twofold one was I wanted to create a um, interview a, a character driven 
interview set up that would capture uh, the person's reality and who they are. And then at the same time, I wanted to find a common denominator between the archival footage and what I would be shooting. And so for me, you know, archival footage varies, of course, when, the, when it was shot, you know, how deteriorated it is. And so for me, one thing is in common, which are the blacks. So black compression was for me one link to bring both of these uh, types of footages together. And so I ended up uh, using, using the C300 Mark II and shooting everything in C-Log, not in you know, C-Log 3, but just in C-Log, which has, uh, for me, a similar look at times. And so, yeah, that was my beginning approach. So for all our audience members out there who have no idea what a C300 is or what C-Log or any of this stuff is, uh, C300 is a camera made by Canon, and C-Log is a uh, picture profile setting that essentially allows you to match cameras and to get the maximum amount of dynamic range so that you can have this wonderful control over over black level. We're generally a non-technical podcast, but at the same time, you can get as technical as you want. So that so don't don't feel that that, that limits you. But every once in a while when uh, we have people on the show who mentioned something technical I try to put in a little explainer for that for those people out there who what what was that I I, I missed my, my brain just exploded <laughs> right, okay get back to talking about like like something I can relate to that that sort of thing uh anyway okay so Ruth Bader Ginsburg yes you have this mountain of archival footage I mean like uh decades and decades of, of this this wonderful footage but uh you know I I saw some of RBG and um you did get some verite moments there's some wonderful stuff of her working out with a person trainer it's like you know that that is not exactly what the first thing you expect when you see an 84 year old you know Supreme Court justice so uh, tell me about some of those those little moments I know your 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 time and access to her was limited but you got to go shoot her working out so it's like tell me about some of these like moments that you didn't necessarily think that I I, I don't know. I don't know if you planned from the beginning to capture her, you know, exercising. But t- tell me about tell me about that. Well, of course, we had hoped that we would catch her somehow, maybe at home or maybe doing something in her office. But because uh, everything is kind of locked, you can't really talk. She can't really talk ever about any of the cases, and so that was instantly out of the question. But we did. Uh, she allowed us to focus on her working out, and it was funny because. You know, her workout is uh, a rigorous uh, uh, 45 minutes. We were allowed in there for about half an hour. And I brought in a second camera because I knew that half hour needed to be maximized as much as possible. So my uh, colleague was uh, shooting tight shots while I was trying to kind of float around the two of them and uh, get the coverage best of her. But the funniest thing was we came in and she's wearing this shirt and it says, Diva. That's yeah, great. It's awesome. <laughs> and so <laughs> that all made us smile so much. And she was just a crackerjack, you know. She was just doing everything and uh, uh, keeping to the beat, so to speak, um, of her workout. It was amazing that an 84-year-old can do planks and push-ups in her own style. Mind you, she's not a bodybuilder, but my goodness, she is fierce and she has strength. And it is quite, quite misleading when you meet her first because of the way of her posture. You know, she has this tendency to have her hand, head down. And sometimes you think, oh my God, is she going to fall when she walks? But don't underestimate her. She is quite strong. I, I feel like there's like a Clarence Thomas joke in there somewhere or like Antonin Scalia joke or something somewhere, but I'm going to be in better taste. I'm just not going to say it. But yes, it, when I saw the, those clips of her planking and stuff, I was like, damn. I was like, that, that's, it's really impressive. And it's really just not what you expect from, you know, a Supreme Court justice leader of the free world. I mean, basically, that's what that's what we're talking about. That's that's what the Supreme Court does. We're starting to run run out of time. And I do want to talk about RBG just a little bit more because it's so interesting and it's the latest thing that, that you're working on. But then I do want to go back to a couple things in the past, which I'm personally really interested in because it's stuff that, I, that I've seen and, and loved. Anything from the RBG experience that you took away? Like, uh, I know that it's uh, it, it's amazing to get to shoot 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I think it's amazing to work on an all-female crew. I don't know how many times that's happened in your career. I have a feeling... This was the first time. I was going to say that, I mean, and that is something that I don't think a lot of people realize, that this industry is, is a male ghetto, let's face it. It's like, it's, it's, it's dudes everywhere, and to actually have a set that is all-female, that's, that's kind of an amazing, and an outlier. I mean, that's, that's not, a, not a typical thing. So, but if, It isn't, and if you think about the statistics that they came out with at uh, the beginning of the year, um, in the five, uh, first 500 productions at this point, it's 4% representation of women uh, in leadership, you know, meaning being as a cinematographer, actually, I think we are still like at 2%. And that means, you know, 98% are men. That's right. But, you know, I have to say from my own career, I've been incredibly supported by my male colleagues and you know, share a lot of admiration for their work and their support. Yeah, and, and I got to say that, uh, you know, even though it is predominantly male, I don't think that there is a conspiracy to keep women out. In fact, I, I often feel the opposite, that there's as much efforts as possible to try to include women in the camera crafts as, as possible, too. And that doesn't happen in every, everywhere in all circumstances, but I like the direction that we're going. I actually finally feel like we're in a, we're in a place where we're, we're heading the right way and there is much more inclusion and this is all happening. And that's a good thing for everyone. I think it's great to have everyone to the party. So, Yeah, I, and I agree. I mean, you know, having a mixed crew ultimately is a, a wonderful experience. I think the behavior is much more uh, emotionally balanced. And, but the, the truth of the matter is that the opportunities are still very few for women to get bigger budgets or bigger responsibilities. And sometimes I think it's just because of how our uh, society has grown. There are no... Everybody is keep, keeps looking for an, a guarantee of, if I give you this job opportunity, can you somehow guarantee that you're going to deliver? And if you don't have a history to back you, back you up, saying, you know, look at all these women who have done the identical job and they have, you know, delivered you can give me a shot too because I have a history lined up behind me. As cinematographers, we don't have that. And so you always have to prove yourself 150% on set. And, you know, I always feel that I have to prove myself so much over and over again to keep my job. Um, Whereas my counterpart as a male, you don't have to prove yourself. You're not even fired until you really mess up. Yeah, I I think that that's uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think that um, the this is such a competitive industry as it is. I mean, uh, and of course, women are going to be uh, they're going to be smaller representation when the competition too for all of these jobs is maybe a hundred or a thousand to one. But uh, for the first time ever, at, at least and by the first time, I mean probably the last couple of decades, I would say I've seen steady increase that. Um, people are really being conscious about this and are really looking to try to balance their crews and are paying attention to who's to who they've got and trying to lift up everyone and try to, to help them so I, I think that I think it's wonderful I think it's, it's very good um, Claudia in the in the final minutes that we have here uh, I'm gonna ask you about Cradle Rock I really liked Cradle Rock I know you worked on it as, as an operator and you got to work with um, you know an incredible cast an incredible director uh, I, I know is a, is is a very overlooked movie. It's also a musical, but uh, give me give me some little flavor of what that experience was like being being on Cradle of Rock. How how was uh, did that. Uh was was it terrible? Was it great? Was it somewhere in the middle? What, I, I can see you're making a face right now, so I don't know that uh, I don't know if I should have asked this. Question. No, actually, I, I had a really good experience. Uh, I think the the reason why I'm making a face because um, even though that I have an operator credit there and I certainly operated there, um, I wasn't on for the entire shoot. Oh, okay. And so I can only attest to what I experienced, which uh, was working um, with uh, the crew and the talent was wonderful. It was. Um, it was great, but, you know. Tim Robbins? Did you work with Tim Robbins? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I worked with Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins and I know each other um, through my husband, who plays ice hockey. Mm, and so right. he played with him a bunch of times at uh, Chelsea Pierce. And, uh, yeah, I also know his ex-wife. <laughs> Susan. She's wonderful. Susan, yeah. she is wonderful, yes. Yeah, she's uh, because, of course, uh, she lived in New York. Uh, they both lived in New York. And so, you know, we had uh, certain areas where we would cross. But I can't really talk anymore about yeah, that. Yeah, no, don't. We, I didn't mean to go down that path. But, uh, <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, okay, so enough about Cradle or Rock. The last thing I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to bring you way back, way, way, way back, all the way to Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which is something that I remember very dear to, to, very dear to my heart. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't that young when Pee Wee's Playhouse came out, but... I was a real fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it looked like apps. I can only imagine to work on that show would have been insanity or it would, or it would have been the exact opposite, incredibly controlled, incredibly like rigorous. And then when the cameras rolled, it was just zany, zany. Oh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm reading into this. I, I actually have no idea what the experience is. You, you oh, tell me. Oh my God. What, 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 Pee-wee's <laughs> Playhouse was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, the crew was fantastic. We actually had quite a balanced crew. Uh, the uh, the seconds were all women, um, me included at that point before I became a first. But uh, um, I think the funnest part was really the amount of magic that happened with the genie and the chair that could hug you and, you know, Pee-wee just putting on his act. And, and you would always wonder, can he actually talk <laughs> normally like we do? Or will he? We always have that tendency to have this high-pitched voice. And, you know, she, he would just switch it on and off, you know. It was just he was a normal guy. But because of this suit that he was wearing all the time, at a certain point you just would forget to look at him differently. He would just be, you know, the character. And that was that. But, you know, we had some problems with the genie because, of course, it's a real person. It's not just a head in the box. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That's a- getting the genie's head in and out of the box and uh, you know sometimes these uh, poor puppeteers who are actually people sitting in the chair and whenever you would sit down they would hug you you know I mean they were suffocating it was just so hot for them to maneuver so uh, just knowing the behind the scenes of how things work on Pee Wee's Playhouse was fascinating. and uh, But beyond that, it's just work on set, you know? And so everything was very um, kind of 9 to 5-ish. It felt that way. You knew exactly where your camera would be. You know, you had two camera angles. You knew where everything, how everything was laid out. So it was uh, a lot of just kind of really understanding how the magic would be created and uh, watching these different teams uh, in the art department uh, make it happen. So it was a lot like punching the clock. You were there nine to five, you did, you did the work, and then you went home. It just so happened that doing the work was uh, a whole bunch of people dressed up in, uh, in, in sometimes full body makeup and all kinds of elaborate props and all kinds of, uh, well, uh, that, that sounds, that sounds, it sounds like, uh, and at that point it must have been pretty early in your career, so uh, it must have been um, another day at the office. That's, that's kind of, I think, in some, in some ways the epitome of like uh, when people think of Hollywood or movie magic or anything like that, it's like, oh, here I am, I'm in my very normal life, and then I just walked into a place where a bunch of grown adults are acting like children. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that brings me right back to what I always loved about, uh, and I still love about the film industry, is that, uh, or especially about uh, making, um, you know, fiction films, is that there is that intersection between reality and fantasy, and that you are witness to that, and that you work so hard, and then it's kind of like having a front row seat at, you know, the theater, at Broadway. You see it first. And so that thrill never goes away. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Claudia, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. It was a blast. That's what I wanted to say. It was a blast. Hey, that was Claudia Reshka. Uh, great work. Uh, let's bring her back here next time she's got something big going on or yeah, small or I, whatever. I'm, I'm sure it won't take long at all. Hey, Ben, it's time to pay the bills. Yay, I love paying bills. Hey, uh, one of our fantastic sponsors of the show, besides Hot Rod Cameras, is a company you may have mentioned once or twice called Airy. Never heard of them. Who's Airy? <laughs> What's an Airy? Uh, Airy is a little company based in Munich, Germany. No, I lied. They're a huge company and they make hey, all but kinds But they are of, based in Munich, Germany. They are based in Munich, Germany. Okay. Didn't, didn't lie about that part. Good, good. Hey, but uh, I want to talk about Aries' new compact bridge plate. The compact bridge plate essentially 
is a new version of an old hit. Last year they came out with uh, with one of these and basically gives you lightweight rods, uh, the ability to balance the camera properly and to have a nice comfy... Okay, okay but back up, back okay, up. Okay. Back What's down. a bridge plate? Tell me about tell me about what a bridge plate is and when and where and why I would ever use a bridge plate unless I was serving friends food at our weekly bridge game that I host. Okay, so the bridge plate bridges the space between the tripod and the camera. Okay. And and what it does is it gives you the ability to balance the camera properly on the tripod and then also gives you all of the different things that you need, like the ability to mount uh, rods and accessories to the rods and maybe shoulder pads and things like that. So it's a thing for ergonomics and balance and making an airy camera sit on your shoulder like it's part of your shoulder, but not in a tumor kind of a way, but like a like a, a super mecha robot kind of way. Yeah, you, you definitely are a little bit cyborg with this, but uh, the good news is is that the plates, they, Ari listens to a lot of feedback from people out there, and they've made them smaller and lighter and better and more functional. So if you are an Amira owner, if you are an Alexa mini owner, you'll definitely want to check out the new compact bridge plates. They're awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for sponsoring us. Hey, uh, Ben, who's the uh, war story this week? Our uh, war story is from Qian Tran, uh, a.k.a. Q. That's how she goes. She wants to sound like a, like a, a Bond uh, ally. Um, she's an amazing DP. She's uh, uh, her, her most current project is Camping, which Ooh, is a TV yeah. series on HBO. H- HBO, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she is awesome. And it, it was the most interesting setup we've done because usually we record these podcasts right where you and I are sitting, but we did this. Her husband uh, has a recording studio and she uh, she and I were Skyping. I was recording myself on my end. She was recording herself on her end. And you'll really only appreciate that in the actual interview, but uh, Ben Katz did an awesome job of uh, melding those two things. Oh, fantastic. And here's Q. And now, war stories. I had a great life in New York until 9-11. And that's when I decided to become a filmmaker. I was really, really close to the devastation, and I lost my apartment. All the windows were blown in, and half the building caught on fire. We couldn't return there. I lost my apartment, I lost everything, and all I had with me was my Nikon and two rolls of black and white film. And that was really the life-altering moment for me, I quit my job at Deloitte and decided to pursue photography full-time. And two years later, I applied to film schools based on my stills portfolio, and I moved to the West Coast. And the rest is history. And now, short ends. All right, Ben. So uh, it's short end time. Yay. Yay, short ends. So uh, what's your short end? So my short end is a thing called uh, Jubilee, which is not in the film world. It's in the theater world in uh, not just not just in Los Angeles, but uh, nationwide. And it's sponsored by uh, HowlRound.com, which I believe is a theater. But the idea is that in the theater season uh, 2020, that uh, participating theaters, and they're trying to get as many theaters in the country to participate in it, they will not produce any plays uh, that are written by, directed by, or I believe starring uh, cis, straight, white guys. They are trying to find, uh, you know, new original visions and new new original scripts and uh, and directors and stars and stuff like that. And it's not just women, but, you know, they're reaching out to the entire LGBTQ uh, world and, you know, people like this, this is a statement from their actual website. Was, uh, we plan to celebrate this vision with a jubilee year in 2020 in which every theater in the United States of America produces works by women, people of color, artists of varied physical and cognitive abilities and or LGBTQIA artists. Wow. Yes. Okay. LGBTQIA. I, I, I'm not familiar with the. I, I and the A. That's intersex and asexual, but uh, I, I have been uh, saying, and, and I hope that this doesn't come across as a piggish, cis, straight, white guy thing to say, can we get a word? Just let's get a word. I mean, can we even just pronounce all that as one word? But it, it would be a weird word to say. Yeah, there's no vowels in that word. But, uh, well, until well, the you, end, you, and then you, you could add some vowels. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, that uh, that abbreviation aside. It's it's not an abbreviation. Now that's long. That's that's really long. <laughs> <laughs> let's not get that, let that get in the way. My As a theater director myself, when I first heard about this, 
uh, also as a cis straight white guy myself, my my first response was like, up yours. I want to be like, I want to have an opportunity to direct stuff. And honestly, that, that's like Monday through Friday. It is. <laughs> so. That's that's the thing. As a cis straight white guy, I've had plenty of opportunities and have taken plenty of opportunities. And it's true. It's, uh, you know, like we do need to make we have to make efforts this being one of them to give uh people of different backgrounds who aren't cis straight white dudes opportunities to uh create art of all kinds uh and that includes film that includes you know that's that's why you know uh we we want to see more women in cinematography we want to see more women directing um and uh in the theater world it believe it or not it's no different and uh and i think it's important and it took me it, it took me a little while. Not that it needed to take me a while. I, I you know it's it it not that it should or shouldn't. I I'm just kind of admitting my flaws as a, as, a, as a human being and as a cis straight white guy. That it it, it uh, my initial feeling was pushback, and the more I think about it, and the more I talk to people in the theater community, the more I see how how valuable it is. That you know there's there's so many unheard voices, and we need to. We need to, as a community, make a point of saying, like, no, we we want to hear those voices. We want to hear those stories. And, you know, I, I've had my chances before. I'm going to have my chances afterwards. Happy to sit out theater season 2020 and uh, hopefully in some other technical or whatever way I can support uh, the, the artists who are going to be coming to the fore. You know, I had like a pithy comment that I was going to make, like some sort of joke in mm-hmm. there, but I'm I'm going to refrain because I I, I got to say that you know uh, we have a much richer tapestry if everyone gets the opportunity, and it's true that there's a lot of disenfranchised people out there who don't get the opportunities, and uh, if we're going to have a 2020 year where there's tons and tons of new voices entering into a space, I mean, let me tell you, I'm sure there's some theater somewhere that would probably still, you know do the straight white guy oh there are plenty of sales i mean to my knowledge the theater company i'm associated with in la which is sacred fools theater they're going to do the jubilee Eh, (laughs) they're going to do the jubilee okay um but i don't know if there are other theaters who've jumped on it i'm sure that there are some but i'm uh, yes if you're a theater artist in in calendar year 2020 and you're a straight cis white guy you know there's there will be david mamet plays produced in that year like you know it's going to happen and i just kind of feel like you know, there are going to be some writers or some directors who we never would have heard of who are going to become the next David Mamet. And they're going to become that because uh, the theater community said, we want to hear from you. And there are going to also be like kids in high school or junior high school or whatever who are any of the people that uh, that they're trying to elevate who are like, yeah, my voice needs to be heard. And they're going to bring us stories that we've never heard before. To me, that's more important than, you know, butthead me getting to direct again that year, a play, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I hear you. And yeah, you're, you're, you're done directing. I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm all washed up. Anyway. So, so Ilya, what is your short end? Uh, my short end is, uh, it's, it's interesting. It kind of, it, it's not exactly the same thing, but I had a really awesome experience uh, a couple of days ago. I spoke at the Canon Burbank office to a group called the Alliance of Women Directors, mm. uh, the AWD, which uh, was frankly unlike any other filmmaking organization that I'd ever spoken to or even was aware of. Um, <clears throat> pretty much the way it works like this, they have a monthly meeting and Canon and Burbank was actually really awesome to to host this for them Uh, in fact they they host all kinds of things there and totally worth checking out because almost everything they do there is free and uh, I don't really know the whole story about Alliance of Women Directors as far as what it costs or how it how you get involved with that but they do have a seems like a very detailed website but what makes the group extraordinary and what I was particularly taken by I was doing a I was doing a presentation yes it was like a PowerPoint sort of thing called Understanding Lens Choices, a mostly non-technical presentation for directors, producers, or any person oh, on you set. Should, you should and, put that online, man. And not in the camera department. I probably could. I could probably You should stick. put that up, man. People would want to read that. People, well, here's the thing. It's a presentation. It's like, you know, it's a thing with, with images and me talking. Mm-hmm. I, I don't prescribed that whole idea of death by PowerPoint where I just read what's written on the page. So I have a bunch of pretty pictures and I talk over it. So it's not, it won't make so a you, lot of sense. So you go to Premium Beats and you get some like Dixieland music and you throw it under <laughs> you talking and you got the good microphone right here and you, and just, you just redo the whole thing. So. Re- redo it as a, as a, as a viral video and put it up there and uh, ne- never once would this video go viral. But, uh, <laughs> 
Okay, well, well here, here, you know, uh, no, no more sidetracking about about me or what I was doing there. But what I was immediately struck by was the crowd. I mean, the crowd. It was me, one other dude who was administering this thing, and then like forty-seven women. And uh, those women were super engaged in in my in my talk. Not saying that my other talks people aren't engaged, but they were really into it. It became very conversational. Uh, they asked a lot of fantastic questions, and then. What was amazing to me is when it ended, and and not to mention, as a presenter, I felt incredibly supported through the whole process, and people were like really, really interested in what I had to say. But then it became the time of the evening where the directors show works that they are putting forth, and there's a questionnaire, and you answer questions about what it is. But the way that the women directors were non-competitive and supported each other was completely unlike all the other filmmaking organizations I saw, where there was like definitely like. I will say a real sense of not necessarily helping their fellow filmmaker there. This I really felt like, hey, we we can help. We can we can be involved, and we can uh, create something that's really special here. And frankly, I don't want to name any of the other filmmaking organizations, but they never had this. Mm-hmm. The, the, We're what, looking at you, Academy of Motion Picture <laughs> Arts and Sciences. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ampus, yes, they uh, they they they, uh, they they failed in this regard. Well, I will tell you though the the. Uh, the AWD had it going on. They were amazing. They had incredibly talented people, really great feedback, and everyone was there to help elevate their sister. They were there to help push them forward, there to uh, you know, help make sure that, that what they were doing was the best they could possibly be. So is there a website that people can check out if they're interested in the Alliance of Women Directors? Yes, they can at allianceofwomendirectors.org. Check it out. <laughs> All right, Ben. I think that I think that's uh, that wraps her up. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that that wraps her up. Wow, I got nothing to follow that. That's like well, okay. we should follow it by thanking our fine crew of hardworking people who make this awesome podcast possible. That's right, Alana Cody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alana Cody, our our fine producer Ben Katz, who we more than once have mentioned, is uh, killing it as the editor. Uh, Kay Zalatracci. Yes, Kay's who uh, composed every scrap of music that you heard on this and a lot that you didn't. Please hire him by going to www.musicbykays.com. We got anything else? Uh, <laughs> that's it. Thank you very much, and we'll see oh, you on what? I got it. Uh, hey, and you know, if you get a moment, uh, Ben, where can people find you? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, you can find me at benrockonline.com. I have a huge announcement coming out. Uh, relative, I'll just say it now. Uh, I know I talked about it on the last episode, but uh, the podcast that I've been cheating on our podcast with, it is called Video Palace. And uh, it will be on Shutter, and it stars Chase Williamson of John Dies at the End fame. Which, if you're like me, and I know some of you must be, John Dies at the End is uh, definitely on your top ten list of genre movies for the last decade. Um, anyway, he's our lead actor, and uh, it's uh, an awesome fake investigation with a paranormal edge that in in the mode of like serial or S Town. Nice. And Ilya, where can people find you? They can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. And uh, I'm on the Instagrams and I'm on the the things as at Ilya Friedman. But really at Hot Rod Cameras is where you can find me. So everyone go bug Ilya at Hot Rod Cameras. And thank you for joining us at the Cinematography Podcast. And we'll see you momentarily. I was going to plug our website too. Oh, uh, but Ilya's got one more plug. So go (laughs) Ilya. Hey, don't forget you can also visit the official website of the Cinematography Podcast, which is camnoir.com and we're also on the Facebook says at cinepod and all of that sort of thing so find us follow us share us we we love that thank you very much so we'll see you soon on episode 26 this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter Thanks for listening. Thank you.